Welcome to this latest episode in our FDI Friday podcast series, in which Herbert Smith Freehill's foreign direct investment regulation experts are sharing their insights into FDI regimes around the globe and focusing on practical guidance for investors. I'm Ruth Allen, a professional support lawyer in our competition regulation and trade team here in London, and I'm joined today by John Taylor, one of our private equity partners, and Veronica Roberts, UK regional head of our competition and regulatory practice, who also heads up the global FDI group. Today, we'll be focusing on the application of the UK's national security and investment regime to private capital transactions and the implications for both fund managers and investors, whether as holders, sellers, or acquirers of investments. For a general overview of the key features of the NSI regime and practical tips for both private and public M&A, please do listen to the first episode in this series. But for today, Veronica, could you perhaps start off by just reminding our listeners of a few key points of particular relevance in the private capital context? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Ruth. So, yes, we've got a combination of mandatory notification requirements for certain transactions in 17 broadly defined sensitive sectors. And then we've also got a broader call-in power for a wider range of transactions in any sector. And there are no turnover or transaction value thresholds, with the exception of a couple of turnover thresholds in a couple of the sensitive sectors. And the NSI regime can catch both new acquisitions, so for example, stakes in new portfolio companies, and also incremental increases in existing stakes. So for example, where an investor intends to exercise rights of first offer in circumstances where another investor is exiting. Now, mandatory notification will only be triggered if more than 25% of shares or voting rights is being acquired in an entity which carries out specified activities in the UK in one of the 17 sensitive sectors. Or if the 25%, 50%, 75% thresholds are being crossed if an existing holding is increased. But that broader call-in power I mentioned, Ruth, that can be used in any sector and can kick in at a much lower level of control where the acquirer obtains material influence and the government reasonably suspects that a risk to national security may arise. Now, material influence can be deemed to exist at really low levels of shareholding, especially if that's combined with other factors like the right to appoint a board member, for example, And we have seen a case already where a shareholding of 12% plus a board seat was deemed sufficient to constitute material influence. And another thing to call out just at the outset is that unlike many other FDI regimes, the NSI regime applies equally, at least in principle, to both UK investors and non-UK investors alike. And it can catch acquisitions of minority stakes in companies which do not even have any real UK presence as such. All that is required is that the target sells goods or services into the UK. So, for example, a deal involving a US company investing in a French company which sells goods into the UK could be caught, but but only by the call-in power. That wouldn't actually be the subject of a mandatory filing requirement. Now, Maybe just talking about timing, because that's always important, isn't it? The vast majority of transactions reviewed by the government are cleared within the initial 30 working day review period. But if an in-depth investigation is initiated, this can have significant timing implications and can ultimately result in transaction being prohibited 
if it's not possible to address the national security concerns by imposing conditions. So conditions like the restrictions on information flows or access or governance restrictions relating to the composition of the board, for example. Now, the UK regime is still relatively new. It's only been enforced since the 4th of January 2022. But the latest data published by the government in July indicates that it is one of the most active globally. The Investment Security Unit that's responsible for reviewing transactions, we call it the ISU, is receiving almost 900 notifications a year, which is around double the number received by CFIUS in the US in a one-year period, and almost three times as many as those received by the pretty active FDI authorities in France and Germany, for example. But having said that, the number of reviews which ultimately result in some form of remedy being imposed is still low in absolute terms. So to date, we've seen 17 final orders, three prohibitions, two divestment orders relating to completed transactions and the remainder 12 conditional clearances. But that rate of intervention is slightly higher than what the government originally estimated when the legislation was going through Parliament. And given the serious sanctions which can be imposed for non-compliance, including the transaction being deemed legally void, as well as significant fines and the risk of imprisonment for individuals, means it is clear that the regime, of course, represents an important additional execution risk factor for investors. Thanks, Veronica. Really useful overview there. Turning more specifically to the private capital context, John, what sort of scenarios do you come across where investors and fund managers might need to be thinking about whether a notification needs to be made under the NSI regime? And if so, by whom? Thank you, Ruth. So let's start off with the more obvious scenario where this is likely to uh, clearly apply, which is new investments. Um, whenever you're acquiring a stake of more than 25% or acquiring voting rights, which give you the ability to secure or prevent the passage of resolutions governing the affairs of the target entity, you need to consider whether the target is engaged in any specified activities in the UK in one of the 17 sensitive sectors. If so, a mandatory notification will need to be made by the acquirer. If the mandatory notification obligation is not triggered, for example, because you're acquiring 25% or less, or because the target entity does not carry out specified activities in one of the sensitive sectors, or because the investment is being made in assets rather than an entity, you should still go on to consider the risk of the transaction being called in for review in national security grants. And you should consider whether a voluntary notification is required because of the risk of a subsequent call-in post-completion. Where the investment is being made in an entity, call-in will only be a possibility if at least material influence is being acquired. But as Veronica already mentioned, this could be the case with a relatively low shareholding, especially where this is combined with other factors such as a board seat. And, and this is a relatively common situation for private capital investments. So it's always worth thinking about. In terms of assessing potential national security risks, the government has sought to emphasise that the nationality of the acquirer will not per se be seen as indicative of a national security risk. And indeed, the regime applies in principle equally to both UK and non-UK investors, as Veronica has mentioned. 
But the assessment of national security risks, of course, considers any risks associated with the acquirer. And in practice, we are seeing a heightened degree of scrutiny of investment associated with China in particular, in line with most other FDI regimes around the world at the moment. That said, it is certainly still possible to get clearance for investment associated with China, whether conditional or even unconditional, and we have been involved in cases where this has been achieved. Let's now go on to consider changes to existing investments. And this is one of those, those, those pay attention moments where people are more likely to get caught out because it's not something you necessarily think about as part of a process of doing that. If one investor is exiting an investment vehicle and selling their stake, that could effectively amount to a new acquisition of control by the acquirer of the stake, which could trigger a notification requirement in the same way as any other acquisition of control. But other changes to existing investments could also be caught, in particular increases in an investor's existing shareholding. For example, imagine a scenario where one investor exits and in exercise of rights of first offer, the remaining investors increase their stake. If this results in an investor crossing the 25, 50 or 75% thresholds, this could mean that a notification needs to be made, and indeed that the ROFO option could not be exercised without first obtaining clearance under the NSI regime if the mandatory notification was triggered. This can have some practical difficulties because often right to first offer mechanisms do not envisage any timeline needed in order to get NSI consent or any other regulatory consent. So if you are looking to exercise a right to first offer or similar preemption rights, you need to consider this before you press the button of actually exercising those rights. And potentially you might need to talk to your fellow investors about the possibility of having to amend the, the timelines involved in order to allow a successful exercise of those rights. This should be the case even if the investor in question has been invested in the entity for a significant period already, and it was clear that no national security concerns would arise in practice in the particular circumstances of the case. The regime could also bite in a scenario where you have an institutional investor which invests both directly in a company or an asset, as well as indirectly via an investment vehicle. If the direct and indirect holdings fall to be combined because of the particular governance and information rights associated with the holdings, then the 25, 50 and 75% threshold is crossed. Thanks, John. And if an investment is being made via an investment vehicle such as a fund, do you need to look through that fund structure to the underlying LPs? So Ruth, this is one of the most important questions when considering the application of the NSI regime in the private capital context. And the short answer is that it really depends on the information and governance rights being granted to the underlying investors or LPs and the extent to which they can be said to be acquiring control of the portfolio companies or the underlying asset or assets. And this is always going to need to be assessed on a case-by-case -case basis. And, and John and I are doing this regularly with, with our teams as well. And the assessment does have the potential to get quite complex sometimes. But without attempting to delve into the detail, I think there are some general principles that it's useful to draw out. So starting off with, a, with an investment held via a blind pool multi-asset fund, in that scenario, you would not normally expect to look through the fund to the individual investors. And that's because a blind pool multi-asset fund will typically involve a fairly large number of LPs with investment risks spread across a number of different assets. 
None of the LPs will have control or are able to exercise material influence over decisions taken in relation to portfolio companies. And their access to information will usually be limited to aggregated financial performance data rather than any granular detail or sensitive IP, for example. So by definition, they are passive investors. And then at the other end of the spectrum, where you have a non-discretionary advisory mandate with the investor retaining control and discretion as to how to vote and exercise rights as a shareholder, there we usually would expect to look through the investment structure to the investor as the acquirer on whom any notification obligation would fall. Thanks, Veronica. And, and what about investment vehicle structures which fall somewhere in between those two extremes? So, for example, what about single asset funds or separately managed accounts? So the position for other types of investment vehicles is more nuanced. And this is where it will be particularly important to seek tailored advice for the particular investment under consideration. Generally speaking, in the case of single asset funds, these will typically involve a smaller number of investors coming together to invest and appointing an external manager to acquire control of a single asset. If the individual investors are not able to control portfolio level decisions, they would not be liable to make any notifications under the NSI Act. But it's probably worth there jumping in, John, just to say that if any of the individual investors has more than 5% of the fund acquiring the asset, then this will need to be disclosed in the notification form. For both mandatory and voluntary notifications, you are required to include information on the ownership structure of the acquirer, including details of shareholders who have shares or voting rights of 5% or more. And in the form, that information also asks for nationality for individual shareholders or the country of incorporation where the shareholder is an entity. So in those circumstances where, where a notification is being made, there is also some scope to look through to the investors in the acquiring vehicle. And that's the type of information that needs to be provided. Sorry, back to you. Thanks, Veronica. That's an important point that, that um, anybody who's making a notification needs to bear in mind. Just rounding off on this part of the, the, the matter, for investments made by way of a separate managed account, whether structured as, as a discretionary mandate or a fund of one, in that scenario, the investor will usually have some form of right to terminate the arrangement on notice and to step into the shoes of or otherwise replace the manager or the GP. In that case, the investor is likely to be considered to have control over the portfolio company. Thanks, both of you. And so given the importance of governance or information rights of LPs in determining the potential application of the NSI regime, are there any steps which investors can take to adapt those rights to minimise risk when structuring their investments? Depending on what will be commercially acceptable in a given case, there are certainly some factors which will make it more likely that an investor would be considered to be acquiring control. For example, being able to exert influence over portfolio company level decisions and reserve matters, no fault GP removal rights, representation on portfolio company boards or LPACs, and rights to receive detailed information about portfolio companies going beyond standard aggregate financial performance information. On information rights, particular care should be taken in relation to access to sensitive information, which could be of relevant to, relevance to national security issues, broadly defined. Even if LPs aren't found to have material influence, 
You can't rule out the ISU insisting that they sign up to informational and access restrictions as a condition of clearance if the government has national security concerns about a particular LP. Thanks. And in, in terms of other practical guidance for investors and fund managers, could I ask you both to share some of the key points coming out of your experience of advising clients on the application of the regime in the private capital context? Yeah, so so uh, look, shall I start? Um, uh, look, I, I think most importantly, don't panic because it is important to remember that the NSI review of straightforward transactions that just don't raise any issues will be completed uh, within 30 working days. Their recent annual report on the operation of the regime said that around 93% of notifications are being cleared at the end of this initial review stage. So most of the time it is just a process and you will ultimately get clearance, even if conditions might be required in, in more complex cases. The most important thing to think about at the outset, I think, is to factor in the possibility of NSI review into the timetable. If a more in-depth investigation is required, the review process can take up to 105 working days or even longer if the parties consent to an extension, which of course you probably would do in practice if the alternative was a prohibition decision. And this will need to be fitted in with everything else in terms of regulatory approvals for a particular investment. So you're probably also thinking about merger control and possibly other FDI filings as well. Thanks, Veronica. And, and, and I would add something to that, that that applies almost as importantly to sellers of assets as to buyers of assets, because although the buyer might be taking it forward, the seller will necessarily be most familiar with the asset at the outset of any auction process, and therefore is best placed to actually give thought initially as to whether an NSI filing will be required from anybody. And there's there's less likelihood that it's going to be dependent on the identity or the nature of the the acquirer, given that the NS the necessity for NSI filing is likely to depend on the the, the identity or nature of the target being sold. In terms of reducing execution risk in the private capital context specifically. In addition to considering various governance or information rights of investors, there are a number of other practical considerations to bear in mind. The first one is thinking about the transaction parameter. Is it possible to carve out the potentially problematic aspects of the target for the purposes of the investment? In reality, this will probably be more manageable in a bilateral scenario and less of an option, option in competitive option processes, but nonetheless worth considering. You should also consider whether it might be easier for one investor to go through the NSI regime approval process first and then subsequently syndicate the acquired interest to other parties who would be considered to pose a greater execution risk if included up front as consortium parties. This is provided those syndication rights do not of themselves fall within the scope of the regime. You should monitor existing positions and consider at the outset whether any change could trigger notification requirements under the NSI regime. In addition to the exercise of options such as ROFO, which has already been mentioned, consider a couple of other points. The first one is drop downs into a direct holding. For example, if you have held an interest by way of a discretionarily managed fund, but exercise a right to remove the manager and end up holding the interest directly, perhaps with the result that the holding then falls to be combined with another direct holding. The other one we'd specifically draw out is the potential impact of any change in manager. Under the NSI regime, 
holdings may be aggregated in certain circumstances, including, for example, where a single manager is responsible for a number of different funds which all invest in the same portfolio company. And then another question, John, um, that comes up frequently in practice, doesn't it, is the is the application of the NSI regime where you have investment from sovereign wealth funds or other state-owned entities. Now, it's worth remembering that the government's guidance makes expressly clear that state-owned entities, sovereign wealth funds or other entities affiliated with foreign governments are not considered inherently more likely to pose a national security risk. And investment by sovereign wealth funds and other state-owned entities is still very much welcomed into the UK. And that is certainly the case uh, for a large number of sovereign wealth funds and state-owned entities. But in practice, um, especially thinking about which country those state-owned entities um, are affiliated with, it might be worth considering whether a state-owned entity could make an investment without needing to make a notification itself by structuring an investment as a managed interest with limited governance and information rights rather than acquiring a direct holding. So sometimes that might be useful. Another point to bear in mind is the use of managed interest rather than direct interest may also present an attractive opportunity for fund managers to bring in capital from investors who might find it more difficult to invest directly. Yeah, and, and then another key issue in practice can be difficulties in ascertaining whether a target entity is engaged in activities in a sensitive sector, which actually fall within the precise definitions in the relevant regs governing when a mandatory notification obligation will be triggered. And John, you mentioned before, thinking about that from the sell side, where obviously they they have a lot of information at their disposal and can look at whether or not the regime might be triggered. But especially when you're looking at it from the investor side, this may not be immediately clear. So it's important to ask the right questions of the right people within the target entity. And also think about whether specific warranties on this particular point might need to be included. And that's important even if you plan to notify irrespective of whether the mandatory notification obligation is triggered. And that's because even though it's actually pretty much the same questions, there are actually different notification forms for mandatory and voluntary filings. And if you use the wrong one, then your notification is likely to be rejected and you will have to resubmit. So you just lose a few days that you could probably do without. Now, during the first 18 months or so of the regime, the government was very reluctant to provide meaningful informal guidance on whether a target's activities would fall within the scope of the mandatory regime in a particular case, usually simply saying to an acquirer or their advisers to submit a notification if they wished. But there have been some indications recently that the ISU seems more willing to provide at least some limited guidance on an informal basis, which we think will be really useful for investors. Thanks, Veronica and John, for what has been a really insightful discussion. And thank you also to our listeners. We'd welcome any feedback you may have on this episode or indeed any suggestions for areas to cover in future episodes of FDI Friday. From next week, we're going to be turning to other FDI regimes around the world focusing on key recent developments and practical guidance for investors. We'll be starting off with CFIUS in the US and the FERB regime in Australia. We hope you can join us then.